0: God made us a family. The following talk was given at the HG e. Butt Foundation Camp in Lakey, Texas, during the Texas Retreat for Families held in October of 2018. In this talk, Jerry Arns discusses renewing your family through embracing God's plan for family life. just set in a way that he thought everyday people could understand. It's the parents. It's not church responsible for educating the kids. It's not your priest. It's not your school. It's not your friends. You parents, you own this. That's yours. They're your children and entrusted to you by God to uh, educate. You know, embrace that vocation. Embrace that ministry. And that's why they founded your holy family's ministry. As uh, Pope John Paul II said, the fundamental mission of the family is a school of love. The family has a mission to guard, reveal, and communicate love. And this is a living reflection of and a real sharing of God's love for humanity and the love of Christ the Lord for the church His bride. It's really a pretty beautiful and frightening concept. We all have our own little schools of love that we're educating our children in. And when we look around the world, we see a lot of graduates of their own little schools of love they have really been fed a counterfeit love because you see political discourse, the way people talk to each other on social media. It's really pretty astounding the virtual and hatred that you see. So we want to make sure our schools of love are graduating students who understand what real, unconditional love is. So the focus of the retreat is to empower you to take the reins of your family, renew your family, and thus renew the world. So I'm Jerry Arms. This is my wife, Abigail. We have 10 children. We're here from Austin, Texas. And we got involved in Your Holy Family retreats because we wanted to connect closer with our family. And once we saw just the gifts of giving to each other and giving to our family, we couldn't help but keep coming back and keep coming back. And so when Alan asked me to talk, I was like... Okay, that's where the Spirit leads me. (laughs) So let's start with a prayer. uh, In the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, thank you for working in our lives to bring us all together amidst God's beautiful creation. Please open our hearts and make them fertile ground for the seeds of the unique message you have for us this weekend to take root and grow. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall, in world without end. Amen. <clears throat> so bear with me for an analogy. Think of your priorities in life as a ball of concentric circles. At the core, you have what your fundamental, most important priority is. And then as you decrease the importance of priorities, it's wrapped like layers to the outside. And as we go through life, there's a lot of really rough abrasive spots that we'll hit. And the first thing to get peeled off is those outermost layers. So if our central priorities aren't really important things and they're on the outside of our ball, they'll be the first things that lose out when those rough patches hit. We all just have 24 hours a day. Nobody has more, nobody has less. How we use that time is all based on our priorities. So what is our goal as a family? First priority of the family, again from Familius Consortio, is the task of giving education is rooted in the primary vocation of married couples to participate in God's creative activity by begetting in love and for love a new person who has within himself or herself the vocation to growth and development Parents, by that very fact, take on the task of helping the person effectively to live a fully human life. Since parents have conferred life on their children, they have a most solemn obligation to educate their offspring. Hence, parents must be acknowledged as the first and foremost educators of their children. Their role as educators is so decisive that scarcely anything can compensate for their failure in it. For it devolves on parents to create a family atmosphere so animated with love and reverence for God and others that a well-rounded personal and social development will be fostered among the children. Hence, the family is the first school of these social virtues which every society needs. It's pretty deep. (laughs) It's pretty intense. But it's pretty awe-inspiring at the same time. So that's what our church says about priorities. Uh, let's come shallow for a minute and look what our society says about priorities. So society says, hey, you do you. Be yourself. But the cultural current's very strong and the caveats that are unsaid are really bold. You know, you do you. More than two kids, are you nuts? You know, be yourself. But you better not say anything bad about my adulterous ways, my blatant homosexuality, my unchecked greed. No, You do you. Don't you dare bulk at paying for my birth control, my abortion, my sinful ways. Be yourself, as long as that self aligns with what society says are the right morality. So these trite societal sayings set things completely at odds. Society on the surface says, you know, you first, which is selfish, of course, and then others. But then in action it says, no, 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 you need to obey what society says are the rules and then maybe think about yourself. But really, society selfs up selfishness as the priority. Pope John Paul II said, At the root of all obstacles to the family is the struggle between freedoms. The freedom to love oneself versus the freedom to love the truth. Society emphasizes the love of self over and above the love of God, the love of family, the love of neighbor, and love of community. So what does our faith say about priorities? Christ central. Family is your primary vocation. Providing for your family comes after your vocation to your family. And then relatives, broader society. So, contrast that view of priorities with modern society. And you see, modern society completely sets it on the end. It says, well, listen to what everybody else says is the right thing to do first. And then, you know, care about yourself. You know, if you have to get married, you know, wait until you've done the fun things. If you're going to get locked down with a ball and chain, well fine, but make sure you travel the world, have a house, nice car. And then if you do get married and must have kids, then make sure you're where you want to be in your career. Make sure that doesn't get in the way. Make sure that you pay for all those debts that you, know, you wrapped up while you were enjoying yourself. And modern culture throws God completely out the window. And it puts the priorities entirely backwards about satisfying your own selfish desires first. So listen to these priorities and just think of how an outspoken modern cultural icon might react. One, I will serve Christ and love him with all my heart. My family is my primary vocation. My workplace is also my ministry. I will serve my fellow man by loving my neighbor as myself. An important point to notice is that God and our faith is not just our central priority, but he's all through the rest of our priorities. It's like beach sand. It gets stuck on everything and everywhere. God's in everything that we do. He has to be. You know, Looking at the priorities, though, it's easy to make a mistake that my wife and I have made in the past and say, well, if it has to do with church, that must be priority number one, God. So we, got, we belong to a rural, relatively poor, fast-growing church, Lots of opportunities to serve. And we got involved in every single one of them we could. Finance council, nights, ladies' auxiliary, grounds crew, baking lunches for the homeless. Everything we could possibly do we were involved in. And it became so that nights and weekends, one of us or the other of us was at the church, passing each other as we went, always involved in everything, couldn't ever say no. Were we really following our proper vocation to our family? No, of course not. We'd fallen for, if it has to do with God, sure, it must be number one. But really, we were placing number four, serving our fellow man, above number one, two, and three. So it's really important to look at how you spend your time, learn how to say no, even to worthy things. Because everything we were doing was worthy and important, But it wasn't what God was calling us to at this stage in our life. He was calling us to be there for each other and our family. When we get older, then we'll have time for some of that other stuff. But right now, our family's our focus. Another important point is my workplace is my ministry. This really flies in the face of modern society's convention for the ideal outside the homework is a complete separation of your home self and your work self. Society says... Leave work at the door when you get home. Don't talk about it. And when you get to work, leave your family at the door. It really sets at odds and asks us to put up barriers in ourselves between our work self and our home self. And that doesn't do anyone any good because then we position with two different selves isolated from each other where the devil loves that. Anytime he can get a wedge in there, he's going to drive that wedge. Another thing society says is that uh, you know, workplace is completely religion-free or politics-free. Well, unless, again, you're following modern pop culture's idea of politics. If you're swimming with the fish, you're great. But if you bring up Jesus or God or any of that, you probably would feel pretty uncomfortable. But if we set up a barrier where my work self is different from my home self in that God isn't there, now we've pushed God away and isolated them, And again, that leaves us really open to temptation and bad things. So when we look at who we are at work, do we reflect a Christian life? Do we reflect Christian values? You know, are we a, a ladder climber? Do we participate in gossip, seeking credit? How do we deal with those in our workplace who might be ladder climbers or participating in gossip and politics? Do we treat them with love? Or do we treat them with disdain? Do we hold those Christian ideals to ourselves or do we do whatever it takes and maybe cut corners to get the job done? If our kids or spouses talk to our coworkers, what kind of things would they hear about our work selves? If our parents talk to our boss, what would our boss say about us? You know, it's not just those who work outside the home. For those who work in the home, what do our little coworkers think about us? You know, fortunately, it... Outside the home, it's not often we have to deal with poopy diapers and people whining about being hungry all the time. Well, sometimes they whine about being hungry all the time. But do we, even in the home, do we how is our behavior towards them with others? Do we engage in gossip, rumoring, or do we stay humble? Do we live those Christian ideals as their parents? How many times have you heard a coworker coming back from vacation say something like, Man, it's good to be back. Those kids were driving me crazy. I needed a break from the family. Or at the end of summer, a parent say something like, I can't wait till school starts to get these little rugrats out of the house. They're driving me nuts. How often do our kids hear us say something like that? And what does that tell our kids about where we value them and uh, where family fits within our priorities? I think there's a real myth of separating work and home life that it's gotta be the same life. Our coworkers need to know about our families and our families need to know about what we do so we have that connection with each other. So what are your priorities? What would your kids say they are? What do your actions say they are? I And mean, often there's a dichotomy between what we believe our priorities should be and what our actions bear out our priorities actually being. Uh, our priest the other uh, last week said, the best way to gauge a man's priorities is to look at two things. Where does he spend his free time, and where does he spend his money? Think about that for yourself for a second, where you spend your free time and money, and what that says about what your priorities actually are. So back to the ball analogy, if our priorities are misordered, for instance, if providing is our number one priority, and we get to that church stuff and family later, our ball is misshapen, our our priority ball. And when those really hard times of life comes, it'll shatter, you know... How many stories do you know of people who have undergone real tragedies in life, and instead of being stripped down to that core of trusting in God, you know, turned to God, at God in anger, and then, you know, completely abandoned God entirely because they weren't angry. So it's a constant battle with society's priorities and their... Perversion of the penultimate. Taking God out and making selfishness or service of the God self the most important thing. So Alan let me talk first so I get to steal some of his material. Uh, he taught us an acronym on one of the retreats and it's busy. Burdened under Satan's yoke. So when we think of, when we are overly busy, human nature is to fall into routine. We become short-sighted and just try to get to the next thing in front of us. We become isolated from those around us and actually end up with little spaces for the extras God may be calling us to do. Often when we are busy, we aren't still long enough to even hear God's call. When we are busy, we have a difficult time being spontaneous to take advantage of opportunities, connect with our families, since we just have no time. Our priorities become upended as the priority is to simply get the next thing done, get to the next practice get to the next ball game, get to the next event at school, and these kids wanna eat again, they gotta feed them. We simply are are just focused at the ground and not looking up to the glory of God. In treating addictions, there's an acronym that's used that talks about areas where danger of relapse is high, and that acronym is HALT, H-A-L-T. Anytime we are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, we're mentally weakened and susceptible to give in to temptation. Being perpetually busy leads directly to these mental states. We're exhausted just trying to keep up with all the activities. Rushing around, we miss or delay meals. We may feel lonely as the family is split up or rushing from thing to thing. Short-tempered and angry as we're late or somebody's not getting their shoes on, somebody's running behind. We're constantly just trying to keep up with it all. And this is exactly where Satan wants us. Because then he's got a wedge, he's got an in. He can influence us to make those decisions that will be detrimental to our lives. Just wreak havoc on our community of persons, our families. So sports is an easy example of the way modern society prioritizes things and takes an objective good and makes it into something that can be actually damaging. Uh, In nearly every movie, uh, the way they quickly indicate that a parent is a good parent or a bad parent is some sort of montage like, Oh, sorry, honey, I've got to work. I can't make it to your game. Oh, sad music, you know, daughter's chronic. Easy, oh, that's a bad parent. Or good parent. My dad always makes all my practices, all my games, buys all the gear. It's great. Happy music, smiles. Oh, it's clear indication that's a good parent. Yet I see constantly in my everyday life with my coworkers, people are just completely overwhelmed by sports and extracurricular activities. I have a coworker who's got two kids in the five to eight-year-old range, And we're talking on Monday about a typical weekend. It might be, well, one of them had a game in San Antonio, one of them had a game in Austin. I had to rush back, pick up the other to get to a birthday party. Then we had an event at school. Next day, more of the same, practices, events. His family spends their time completely split apart and not being a family together. You know, his seven-year-old is on a select soccer team to travel to Amsterdam. Crazy. So the family split up dad stayed home, had to take vacation time to watch the one son, mom went to Europe with the other son, the family was put into chaos over a few seven-year-old soccer games. It's crazy what society says, indulge everything your child wants to do. Give them every opportunity for success by putting them in every activity they might be interested in. So the danger is not always an obvious bad versus good, but in a misalignment of priorities on objective goods. Sports can be very much an objective good. These activities can be very good. They teach leadership. They teach, you know, how to deal with disappointment and success, how to take direction. Yet society says give them everything and then make them the sole focal point. It becomes not about, that, about God or the family but just about that one individual and what they can do and what they can accomplish. I mean, look at any movie with a sports montage and it's you know early mornings late nights, lots of sweat at the gym hitting things running around there's no time on knees in prayer there's no looking at God is this what the path is for me it's all about worshiping self you do this hard work and you get it for you not for any greater glory so many years ago too many for me as a Packers fan the Packers won the Super Bowl and Greg Jennings, wide receiver, had some just amazing plays during the game and was pretty critical to the win. And after the game, reporters are shoving microphones in his face and going, all your hard work finally paid off. Look what you did, look what you accomplished. He looked at him and said, it's a great day to be great, but to God be the glory. So he really took that moment of everyone saying, you did this thing, you earned this, it's all about you, and pointed it where it belongs. So sports can be good, But an overindulgence of sports or other activities can lead to that perpetual busyness and problems. Let's say your family cut out one sport or activity. What else could you do at that time and give glory to God and glory to your purpose and your vocation with your family? Another thing I want to talk about is the quality versus quantity time. You'll hear people say, I don't have a lot of time to spend with my kids, but what little time I do get I make sure is quality time. I will really challenge that as a myth because without quantity time, you can't have quality time. You know, if you're doing things with minimal interaction, you can have quantity time. Like let's say you're all eating dinner together, but everybody's got a device out. That's maybe some quantity time, but no quality. Let's say you're cheering at an event, a sports event for your child playing. Well, they're here and you're here. There's quantity time. You're physically present for each other, but you're not emotionally there. You're not talking. You're not having those deep conversations. Kids want your time and attention. They crave interaction in various forms at various ages. And the deep questions, the deep interactions, only come in high-trust, low-pressure situations. And unless you're spending a lot of time with them, you're not going to build that trust where they feel comfortable asking those questions. They They don't feel... If you only have a little bit of time, you feel the pressure to make it quality. And they'll feel that pressure too, and your inactions will become forced. You know, recalling uh, an incident with my son, he was really sad one day, and I talked to him about what's going on. And he mentioned a few months ago, you said we'd play this game, Dad, and we never did. I was like, oh man, I can't believe it. But then I was able to talk with him and say, well, look at the time since then that we've spent time together. Look at all the different activities we've done. And so because I would spent the quantity time with him, you know, I'm human, I make mistakes. I said we play a game and never did. And he latched onto that. But if I only spent minimal amounts of time with him, that would be one of his main memories. And because I spent a lot of time, I was able to overpower that negative emotion he had with that one memory. With look at all the other things we've done since then that show that you're special to me and that's something I, that, that I make you a priority. I mean, more than anything else, they want our time. You know, When they're very young, that may be sitting on the floor with them and playing silly games and coloring, but it's not very old where they start to really be interested in doing what you do and wanting to be involved with what you do. My six-year-old is really interested in yard work for whatever reason. There's not much she can really do to actually help me in the yard, but I take that interest and have her be with me and be present while while I'm doing those things because it helps teach that, hey, we're in this together. We can work together towards something, and this isn't just, you know, Dad goes, does his thing. I go and do mine. We, We connect with each other, and in time, that connection builds a bond to where they can actually be helpful and they're interested in helping. Again, the quantity of time that you spend pays off in an investment down the road. You know, always, you know, Mom, can I help stir that? She can't always be helpful, but she wants to connect. So my wife and I really love gaming, board and card gaming, not video gaming. And we, so we have a lot of games at home that we play with the kids. And this is really a great way to connect with the kids because, unlike yard work where it's hard and doing something difficult, this is, you know, fun, unforced, unpressured time. And it really lets us have that connection of trust as we play. And sometimes it's a lot of fun. Sometimes it's not. And then those are opportunities for them to learn about sportsmanship and winning versus losing. And that when we play games with each other, the goal isn't to win. It's to spend that time together. It's to connect. As part of that, my son took up Pokemon cards. (laughs) So he's, you know, his love of game, my love of gaming, was transferred to him, and uh, he was re- always talking about them and all the ridiculous names and things. And finally, I was like, okay, why don't I take this as an opportunity to connect with him? Why don't I play Pokemon with him? And at first, I thought it seemed really silly, but it was actually a lot of fun. And now, and we really connected over that, where we could talk and discuss, and that was time that we could talk about things that he couldn't just talk about with his friends, like if. If only his friends could talk about Pokemon, then he'd be calling his friends and talking about it. But he could spend that time talking about it with me. And pretty soon some of his friends started to ask, hey, could we play Pokemon with you? And I found that interesting. That's not the. One. I can't really prioritize my time to go play with all his friends, too. But since there's lots of untapped things in your kids' lives, they're just looking for a way to connect. And if you can look at what their interests are and, and get into their fun things, even if they seem silly, like Pokemon cards, <laughs> you can really ha- really connect and build that bond of trust. So as they get older to teens, they get, begin to push away and show more independence. Uh, I've read some books by Meg Meeker. She's a largely secular author who uh, runs a psychiatry practice and just writes about things she's seen observing uh, in society. And she has some really excellent advice on relating to and spending time with teens. Uh, she says that teens generally suffer from low self-esteem and will begin to push parents away. I don't like me, so why would I expect mom and dad to want to spend time with me and like me? So they start to push those walls uh, almost like a self-defense mechanism. They have fragile psyches, hormone-driven emotions, and want to try to understand who will love and fight for them, who will deliberately, consciously or unconsciously, you want to be with them even when they're at their worst. Uh, in, in one of her books, uh, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, uh, it recounts a story of uh, a girl who came into her practice in her 20s who had a father who was relatively distant growing up, worked a lot, didn't let us spend a lot of time with her. And Meg asked her, you know, how did your father feel about you? And she said, well, my dad really loved and cared about me. It's was like, well, how did you know that? And she recounted a story of when she was going off to college the summer before. Her dad asked her to go on a camping trip and then forced her to go on a camping trip with him. And she recalled how throughout the experience she complained bitterly. You know, no cell phone, no time with friends. I want to be connecting before I leave the college. I don't want any of this just sitting in the wilderness. And her dad endured that you know they made a little bit of small talk never really said much during the weekend but at the end of the weekend she realized that my dad was fighting for that time with me you know he was enduring me making him absolutely miserable and he could have been doing something he wanted to do a lot more but instead he was being with me he was showing me that i was important and that this time together was important for him important enough for him to make it a priority so modern society, when they, they talk about love, kind of really turns it on its face too, just like when they talk about any of the other priorities. You know, society really tells us that like equals love. So what would a society say about being in love? So my wife and I watch a few shows, one of them is This Is Us, and on a recent episode it recounted you know the parents' meeting story, their first date. And it really went pretty awfully. You know, The two characters didn't mesh with each other at all, didn't have common interests, you know, circumstances were poor. And and towards the end, he said, you know, I know this date went really bad, but, uh, you know, being with you makes me feel happy. When I'm with you, I feel comfortable. I've been having a hard time since the war, but being with you makes me feel like I'm at home. Society says, "Oh, look, they're falling in love. Isn't that great? But, you know, all those emotions and feelings, we're all talking about, Himself. It wasn't talking about, you know, maybe a good thing about her. It was all about feelings. And feelings change. You know, moment to moment, day to day, feelings can change. You can fall in and out of light. And it happens all the time. So society can't provide what unconditional love looks like. And our children really need that unconditional love. So... If society says that like you will love, what does love really mean? And I think we see it all around us in our homes and our church all the time when we look at the cross. It's that wanting the good of the other as other. Wanting good for that person even if it doesn't give you anything in return. You know, Christ died to freed us from our sins and the bondage of death because he loved us and cared for us. Not because he needed us, but because he loved us. And our kids really need to see that unconditional love. And they can't get it from their friends, their peers, their sports teams, their report cards, because that's all conditional. they stop trying at school, the grades go down. It's conditional. If they fight with their friends or cause problems, the friends will invite them out less and not want to spend time with them. It's conditional. They want to see us fight for them to show them what unconditional love means, in that if we're having... Struggles, it doesn't mean our relationship with them is over. We can fight, we can make up, we can. But no matter what, we stick together as family. So, and note, there's a pretty important difference between uh, fighting for a child through love and fighting with them. If uh, our discourse with our kids sounds like you know modern political debate on Fox News, then. Maybe we're not fighting for them, maybe we're fighting with them. Fighting with them means we're having the difficult conversations, challenging their behaviors, teaching discipline, not running away because it's hard. It means we're listening to them, where they are and who they are, and giving for them ourselves and our time, even if it's very, very difficult. So every family is different, but for my wife and I, we make a priority to have at least semi-regular, unpressured time with our kids. We take them on a date night. Where we go through each of our kids and one by one, take them out to a restaurant of their choosing and then to go date night shopping. And it's really important because it, it, it develops that connection with them of just doing something fun with your parents and shows them they're special. Now when they were younger, it would be separate. My wife would take them through one date night cycle than I would because one of us had to stay home and watch them. But as they got older and they could self-supervise, then it was my wife and I taking just one of them on a date. And that really sets the tone of not only are you special, that mom and dad want to be out with you. But it shows that the priority is time with spouse as well. To show them that our time is important. So we're not gonna give up time that we could spend together just to be with you. You can come and be part of that special time. Another thing we do is, uh, you know, we do the grocery shopping together. Not because it saves time or is faster, but so that we can be together. We can spend that time together serving the family. And often we take our kids after their date night shopping, grocery shopping with us, so they can see, get that sense of service and see what serving a family really means. And it's really important during that date night that we put our phones away, we don't get on social media, we're giving them that focus time just for them so that they feel special. And some really beautiful conversations have started uh, out of those situations. Low pressure, high trust, it's not an interrogation session, we're just enjoying a meal together, and some really great uh, fruits have come from it. So speaking of moment of time on social media, I found that my day goes a lot better if I don't waste you know, as much time on it. Uh, you know, I, I got on Facebook to be able to connect with relatives and family and friends that are really a long ways away, and it's really good for that. But I found I wasn't always using my time intentionally, where I'd get on and see, oh, look, somebody posted something ridiculous it has got 46 comments, Ooh, get the popcorn, this is gonna be fun. And I was literally taking some sort of sick joy, pleasure, I don't know, in reading about people in real time destroying each other, destroying families, relationships, lives. And it's, it's so easy to get caught up in that drama because it's on the surface interesting. I gave up Facebook for Lent and I thought it would be a really hard thing because I spent a lot of time reading about other people's lives. And it really wasn't. I found my attitude was better. I had more time for other things like know my family that's here with me not on Facebook and it really changed my whole attitude because I would get wrapped up in all the ridiculous things people said and you would just feel that kind of eating at your heart just the chaos and the raw emotion and drama and it really affects you negatively so I put it away, unfollowed those people that uh, you know posted a lot of stuff that was, would get me riled up, and just kept it as reading about friends and family who don't post ridiculous things. And I can get in and out in five minutes, see what's going on, use it what it's good for, and not get caught up in all the mess. And it's really about using your time intentionally. It's getting back to priorities. How you prioritize the use of time, you avoid... You know, I would go on for five minutes and be there for an hour reading ridiculous things. But when I use my time with intentionality, what is this for? I I bear the fruits. So Pope John Paul II also said, The great danger for family life in the midst of any society whose idols are pleasure, comfort, and independence lies in the fact that people close their hearts and become selfish. So in closing, make sure Christ is the central priority in your life. Make sure that family is your primary vocation. When you look at your spouse, think of the the biblical creation story. Replace Adam and Eve with your names. Think about it as God created you both uniquely for one another to fulfill his purpose. This isn't just a nice person you met that's fun to hang out with. This is someone ordained by God for you so that you should not be alone consecrated to his purpose forever together in life. We look at our kids, these are unique souls made by God and entrusted to you uniquely as parents to nurture. God didn't just play the soul lottery and just deal out kids as, uh, as they came. He looked at that unique individual soul and said, these are the people that need to raise this child. These are the people who can fulfill their purpose. These are the people who can lead them according to my plan. They're an incredible gift. So when we think about our kids, let's not get trapped in society saying, it's a burden, it's a problem, they're trouble. Think of the unique gift from God we have to raise them according to his plan. So when you look at your life, what things do you derive your joy from? If your family isn't the primary source of your joy, how are your priorities aligned that are preventing that? If you do derive a lot of joy from your family, How are your priorities aligned that allow that and how can you bolster that? Thank you for listening. For more information on Your Holy Family Ministries, please visit yourholyfamily.org.